Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. Today's passage is 1 Peter 3. So as we reach the halfway point here in 1 Peter, let's ask this question. Why are we here? Like to start with, we got to say, well, where is here? And what we've seen so far in 1 Peter is here means that you are a part of the people of God. You have received mercy. You have been born again to a living hope and you have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you that nobody can take away. You've been born again uh, through uh, the word of God. You've been ransomed from your futile ways by the precious blood of Christ. So that's where we are. And one point that we have seen is that is completely undeserved. We are in a completely undeserved undeserved position of grace, mercy, and hope that has been entirely uh, accomplished for us through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. These are pretty amazing things. That's where we are. Now, I ask the question, why are we here? Why are we in this undeserved, amazing position? Well, uh, we, we see part of that back in chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Each one of those phrases, a staggering and beautiful description of where we are now. But why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why are we here? Why are we now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? We are here so that we may bring glory to God, so that we may, as it says, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then one thing that we see, and we saw yesterday, part of that, Part of what God is calling us to do, to exalt him and to proclaim his excellencies, is going to come really through our attitude in the midst of suffering. When we suffer well, that proclaims the excellencies of God. And we saw that in our last reading is, well, that's, that's part of why you should submit to the government. And that's why even if you have an unjust master, you should still do what is right, because that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. We're going to continue somewhat on that theme today. And what we saw life in society with the government, we saw life in somewhat the workplace with slaves and masters. And now we're going to talk about marriage in chapter three. And notice how if you connect these things to their broader context, there's a hint in each of these of, hey, marriage is not going to be easy, but if you suffer well and are selfless, you, you will bring glory to God. And it starts there with the wives, with the standard biblical command everywhere uh, that the New Testament addresses wives, this is what it tells them to do, be subject or to submit to your own husband's. 
But here it gives us some unique reasoning and examples that we don't get other places in the scriptures. It says, so that even if some do not obey the word, read, they're not saved. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So even if your husband's not a believer, if you are respectful and pure, you, you live with this attitude that we're starting to see uh, kind of connect all of these different things, you will declare the excellencies of God. You will be a, a witness. And that's where you want to adorn yourself, not with fancy clothes, but with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then she gives an example for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. That's what makes it all work. How is it possible to submit to, in this case, perhaps even an unsaved husband? Well, it's possible if you hope in God. If you realize my husband is not ultimately my protector, my provider, my leader, God is. And I'm hoping in him. I know that he will never leave me or forsake me. I know that he will never let me down. So my hope in him enables this gentleness, this beauty, um, this respectful and pure conduct. And it gives Sarah there as an example. So wives, you need to hope in God. Hope in God in such a way that it shines through in your conduct, that you're not bent out of shape or angry or, or nagging when you don't agree with your husband. You're hoping in God and, and you're remaining gentle and quiet. And you don't need to, as it says in verse six, fear anything that is frightening because you're hoping in God. Next, we get to the husbands. It says, husbands, I, I personally think, you know, we look at Hebrews or Ephesians 5 and we see a, a long section to the husbands. First Peter, this is the second longest passage to married couples in the New Testament. It gives six verses to the woman and one verse to the husbands. My personal theory is Peter knows us guys and husbands will be working on that one verse until we die. You know, hey, if you want more, I'll give you more, but but work on this and then I'll give you more. Well, we're going to be working on this until we die. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That is not something I'm just going to paint with a broad brush here. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's not something that men tend to naturally do well. Part of it is because we're fallen and selfish. Part of it is just we're men and we can be more oblivious, uh, where women can be more sensitive. So men fight against just what's natural for you as a man, fight against what is fleshly for you as a sinner and live with your wives in an understanding way. And even as the one whom God has given leadership and authority in the home, don't just pound that leadership. That's the easy thing to do. But if you trust in God, and you declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you will also be gentle and you will live in an understanding way. You will show honor to your wife. So married couples, there's definitely something for you to think through in this passage today. Wives, are you showing respect and purity and gentleness towards your husband, even when you don't agree because you're hoping in God? Husbands, are you living with your wives in an understanding way, really working to understand them? And if they disagree with you on something, instead of just pounding your fist and saying, well, we're doing it my way, slow down, 
listen, what is your wife's concern? Is it valid? Maybe there's something you haven't seen. Maybe there's even insight to the scripture you haven't considered. Slow down and listen to your spouse. And notice even the warning God gives you husbands, if you don't do this, your prayers will be affected. So there we we see that. Then we get a little more general. We get away from marriage into words that could really affect any relationship. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 34 and basically saying, you want to love life? You want to see a good life? Then then don't do these things and pursue peace. Now, I think there's a naive way to approach this, but then there's also a reaction to that, that, that we need to put away. The naive way is just to look at this and say, well, hey, if I just, if I'm just tender and humble and gentle, everything will be great. You know, if if everybody's just tender and sympathetic, you know, then we can just all get together and feel all right. Well, I'm sorry that that's not life in the real world. And that ignores the context. And even what we'll see is that we go on in this chapter that ignores the context that no, you will suffer and you will even suffer for doing what is right. So if you think, ah, if I'm just tender and, and show love to people, um, everything will just be nice and groovy. Sorry, that's not what's going to happen. But you can overreact to that and we can become jaded. And basically we can start to think this doesn't work. Being sympathetic, having tender hearts and humble minds, n- never repaying someone evil for evil. I'm sorry, that, that's also just not how the world works. And so I, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. No, stop and listen to God. Basically, do what God says and trust what God says kind of with a simple faith, just realizing that it's not going to mean everything is fine all the time. Because he goes on to describe you are, you might suffer, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And then this is key, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you're going to suffer, suffer unfairly. And when you are, people are going to wonder, why are you not freaking out like everybody else does? Why are you not responding in kind like everyone else is? Well, let me tell you about the hope that I have in Christ and doing it with gentleness and respect, always trying to have a clear conscience. So that that is the, the center here. You need to do what is right. You need to have humility, sympathy, love, and not seek vengeance, no matter what other people are doing to you. And that's going to give you opportunities to tell about the hope. And you don't need to be afraid. Don't be afraid and have no trouble. And that's what I think we see really at the end of the passage. There's some really interesting things here, but let's not miss the point. It says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so as we look at this last paragraph, a couple points, one, you should do this because A, that's what Jesus has done. He suffered. Uh, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. You're going to have to follow in that example. But with what we see uh, largely in the rest of 
the, the passage. I think the point that it is making is you don't have to be afraid because Christ, after he suffered, well, he has now been exalted. He is victorious and he has power even over the evil spiritual forces that are at work in our world. So you can trust God and do what he has called you to do in this chapter because Christ is in control. After he suffered, verse 19, it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And that's where I think what that is talking about. It goes back to Genesis 6 and this very confusing passage. Who are these sons of God that marry these daughters of, of men? I think that's referring to a really fallen angels in that passage. And I think what we see here and in some other places, God has dealt with those angels. And I think Jesus basically after his his death is going and proclaiming victory really to those. And there's other possible interpretations that we don't have time to, to get into. This isn't the only orthodox view of this passage, but I think it's playing to that bigger point of Jesus is in control, even over evil spirits. And then we get into baptism and it's interesting where it says baptism now saves you. Well, wait a minute. What, what does that mean? Well, he's very clear. He's not just talking about physical baptism, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God. So it is not the act of baptism that saves you. It is what baptism signifies that saves you really faith in Christ or an appeal, as it says there, uh, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a symbol that, that shows that substance of faith. And that is what saves you. And then again, notice how it highlights the authority of Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So I think again, let's not miss the forest for the trees here with some interesting and things worth digging into here in the end of this chapter. The broader point is follow Christ's example of suffering but also trust his authority that in the wake of his suffering, he has declared victory and angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So going all the way back to verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled because you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Think about how that applies for you today, whether that's in your marriage or just in any relationship where there is perhaps even unfair suffering. How can you reflect the hope that comes from faith in Jesus Christ in that situation? Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.